Hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme. Does your city have a sound? Can you recognise London, New York or Tokyo just by hearing a recording of a busy intersection? Well, this week we decided to explore sound and the city, including how it changed during the past few months as the world went into lockdown. So join us as we explore the ways that our cities sound and what lessons we can take from it. That's all ahead over the next 30 minutes, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Andrew Tuck. How does sound shape our urban areas? Or... Is it in fact the other way around? The built environment is the one responsible for changing what a street sounds like. And in a year marked by people staying at home, cars parked and planes grounded, has that made us more aware of the sounds, noises and hums of our cities? John Levac Draver is a professor of acoustic ecology and sound art at Goldsmiths, University of London, and he joins me now. John, we spoke to you back in 2015, and it's great to have you back on the show. But I think we should go back to basics, first of all. Can you explain to us what acoustic ecology is? So it's a very rich term, acoustic ecology, and it can be many things. But basically, disciplines like acoustics, which are very focused on the kind of sound pressure levels and issues of noise, where acoustic ecology is interested in the quality of sound, what they mean, all the sounds in the space, and also the hearers, all the people that are listening, and sound making. So it's a much more kind of holistic concept than, say, acoustics historically has been. We know this concept of soundscape and soundscape studies, which pretty much means the same as acoustic ecology. And in the last 10 years, acoustics has really taken on soundscapes, which is exciting, but it's a challenge for acoustics because also it's not just about how loud sounds are, but it's about the quality and it's also about what they mean. So it's a really interesting time. And what's the intersection with what we're talking about today, cities? How does acoustic ecology interact with urbanism and urban design? Right now, it's not interacting much, but it should be, because in urban design, we're thinking much more about accessibility and placemaking. And acoustic ecology has a lot to do about that. I'm interested in a concept called oral diversity, which is basically a simple concept around the idea that we all hear differently. But that might be, for some people, the world's too loud and they experience a lot of pain because of loudness or they've got tinnitus or maybe they've got hearing loss. Normally, acoustics and acoustics within urban design has kind of thought that we all hear in the same way. But I'm really concerned that we need to embrace the kind of whole world of, of people who hear and also other creatures, which is complex again. We're quite good at doing complex. <laughs> so let me ask you another kind of slightly tricky question. Sound is an interesting thing because I think many people think of it in very rudimentary terms. They think they would be aware of, as you say, loud sounds or quiet sounds, and they would be aware of something that was particularly melodic so if they'd gone to a concert or if they'd paused in a space where there was i don't know a piece of music playing outdoors they would be very aware of that but how do we filter the sounds in a context like the city when there are numerous sounds going on and as you say there might be everything from traffic to birdsong are people aware of sound as they are say sight or smell i mean we're all we're all different but most kind of psychology textbook says that through exposure we habituate you know we get used to things we get used to noise i'm a bit wary of that concept i think it's highly kind of simplistic some people through exposure particularly to something like for example very low frequency sound they get more sensitive to it and it becomes a more of a problem 
Also, there's lots of high-frequency sound in the current and modern urban environment that it didn't used to be there. And that might be inaudible to someone of my age, but to a child, to a teenager, it might be intolerable. So it's quite interesting. There's things we can hear and don't hear, and there's things that we might not be aware of, but might be impacting on our on our health. So again, it's tricky. We need to take a much kind of wider view on these issues. Now, Tommy, one of the key things that did come out, actually, of the, the lockdown period were many stories from people saying, I'm at home, I'm not in the office all day. This is the first time that I've been aware, for example, of the the shift of season from winter to spring. I'm suddenly really aware of the birds, of the sound of somebody walking down the pavement, of the falling of rain. Do you think that when we come back to look at this period, there will be an acoustic history to be written of this, or recorded rather, of this time? Yes, well, very much so. But also it's going to impact on the future as well, I think, a lot. It has been an extraordinary time for listening and for hearing. And people have been really tuning into the prevailing sonic environment in a way that they haven't really before or maybe not been so aware of. I've become really aware on Wednesday morning at half past six, our rubbish is collected. And I would normally sleep through it, but now I'm aware of it. And it sounds like a kind of dinosaur going down the road. I mean, a, a can of DW40 would quickly get rid of the squeaky sound from this huge refuse collection van, but it's extraordinary. How come I slept through these sounds before? I do not know. In London, I live in a very narrow, small street where, because a lot of the gyms were closed down and people couldn't get their dose of morning exercise, I became very tuned to several young people who lived down the road who took up skipping during lockdown. And that skipping rope sound will always now be implanted in my mind as a sound that you associate with the lockdown, just because people were using the street in a different way. You know, the streetscapes changed as well. But definitely there was a a piece of acoustic imprinting that happened for me and I think for many people they've tuned in as you say to these odd different sounds. That's a lovely example but I mean I I know I'm lucky I live in a lovely environment but I did a bit of work in in a park in Hounslow last year which is on the flight path to Terminal 5 at Heathrow and I was so shocked with these airplanes landing above my head continuously. Now people living there have now through lockdown suddenly these planes must have really been cut back a lot so they've experienced a kind of new a new experience. But of course, there's a difference. You know, sometimes intermittent sound can be more annoying than continuous sound. And I think that's something we've experienced during lockdown. But I think we have become sensitized through this period, which is interesting. And it's going to be really hard. What's well, right now, we're going for that process right now where we steadily get back to a kind of normal urban soundscape. And it's going to be hard for a lot of people, I think. Well, I wanted to dive in here because you've given us a, a bit of a treat here, an acoustic treat, which is... Looking at how sound changes across history, and this is a clip of Beach and Place, which is in central London, which is in Knightsbridge. And you've got three clips here. Could you tell us when they're from and, and what they show? Yeah, so the first clip is amazing. It's a recording made in 1928 by a project supported by the Daily Mail. And we hear the voice of someone called Commander Daniel, who had just left the Navy. He's an interesting character. They were doing a project looking at the impact of traffic noise on health. And this is 1928, kind of interwar period, a really interesting time. They weren't really concerned about the impact of noise on hearing loss, which is what we really got obsessed with for the last 50 years. It's more about the impact on well-being, on your nerves. They talk a lot about your nerves and on productiveness and lack of sleep and so on. So that's the, the impetus for this project. And the set of recordings, which are now in the Museum of London, are completely pioneering. There's a whole series of recordings made across London in 1928 by this team. And so we've got a lovely record of urban sounds from this period. This record is being taken in Beecham Place, a side street off Brampton Road, 
at midday on Thursday, the 20th of September, 1928. Three taxis have just gone by. There is now a lull. Two private cars are just coming up. Well, John, we had the 1928 clip, and then that was followed by two others that you kindly gave us. One which was the roar of contemporary traffic, of contemporary cars, as it were, from 2018. And then at the end, that more, I don't know, stripped-back sound of the period of the lockdown. Extraordinary to listen to all three. And, you know, as I said earlier, perhaps people don't notice the progression of sound and how it changes until something rapid happens like the lockdown. But when you listen to those three things, how do you read them and, and what's their significance, do you think? Yeah, I mean, they need, uh, you know, a lot of contextual information to kind of learn to listen to those recordings. I've been returning to the site for 20 years now because what's useful is that at the beginning of the recordings, Commander Daniel tells exactly the date and the time of the recordings. So I actually, in 20 years ago, it was the 80th anniversary of these recordings, I went back to two other locations to record them. And then I went back last year, it was the 90th anniversary. So I again went back to those locations and then we found the other locations as well through the Museum of London. So I've been going back to this place. And of course, even over 20 years, traffic has changed dramatically uh, with the shift to electric cars, especially cabs, actually. Lots of electric cabs on that street now. So just in terms of the kind of engine noise has changed. Of course, there has a lot to do with rhythms of the day and the time. So, yeah, there needs to be a lot of contextual information about how to, you know, what sounds we're hearing, because it can sound a bit like undifferentiated noise. But it's really interesting to get beyond the noise. And then to think this kind of really crucial moment in time when we're moving to electric cars, which are ostensibly silent, not quite silent, you know, but we're losing those engine sounds and diesel sounds. You know, we're moving into sound design of cars. And how do we want our cars to sound like? It's a kind of unique moment. Can you explain to us a couple of other projects, the Quiet Parks International, and there's also an app that's in use now, Hush City App, which are attempting to protect soundscapes around us. Could you just tell us a little bit why these are significant? There's lots of projects happening just now, and it's really exciting, especially even during lockdown, suddenly lots more projects happen. There's a very nice project run by Pete Stollery in Scotland, a kind of COVID sound map where people can upload their sound recordings. I mean, it gives us a kind of record. For me, it's very important that when people are kind of submitting recordings to these maps that we have a bit of information about what it means to people. You know, that transforms the importance of those recordings. Just sharing recordings without that kind of bit of contextual information is not so useful. And as we just showed there with the recordings you played, that's a lovely example of kind of a longitudinal study. And that's what we're missing. You know, we don't have these kind of long-term sound studies. We do have some noise studies historically, I mean, looking at sound pressure levels, but we don't have these more qualitative studies because we can't really, it's very hard for us to talk about how things used to sound because we can only use our memories. 
or maybe look at documentary film and so on. So we need more of these studies to really have a stronger sense about how the soundscape is changing and also how our attitude to the soundscape is changing. For example, there's evidence that says aircraft noise has got quieter in London over the last 10 years. But attitudinal studies have said that our response, our annoyance to aircraft noise has gone up. So although they're getting quieter, we're getting more annoyed about it. So that's really interesting. How do we develop these kind of studies so we can learn more about that situation? Two very quick final questions. The uses of these sounds, you know, we're obviously talking to you about their use in telling an oral history, an acoustic history of cities. But what do people use your recordings for? What are the bigger picture things? Well, all kinds of things. I mean, I loved your idea of skipping. I mean, for me, that's a little bit of historical culture there. I mean, I'm actually, my background is composition and music and sound art. So I'm often making sound installations and compositions out of environmental sounds, which in a more of a kind of narrative way, telling the story about places and people. And there's lots of artists now working with field recordings in a similar way. It's really a really rich, powerful way to work in a kind of meaningful way, that in a way that a lot of kind of abstract experimental music was more kind of cut off from. Just tell me finally, when you listen to those recordings, all the recordings, you don't just listen to them as dry pieces of data, of historical recordings. You find them melancholic, emotional, I don't know, connecting to place. They have a resonance beyond the kind of the factual element. Yes, and recordings are limited. They're a reduction, of course. So what I really like to do is an activity called sound walking. So I really like to be in those environments and walk and listen and be with groups of other people just walking and listening. That's a really powerful discipline, especially when you do it for about 60 to 90 minutes with no talking and you've turned off your mobile phones and the exercise is just listen. It's a really powerful experience and people really transform how people listen to the environment. So much so that people don't often like to break that silence after the end of those walks. At the end of a sound walk, we have a lovely discussion. People tell us what they've been hearing and the impact of the soundscape on their lives. John Levac Draver of Goldsmiths, University of London. Thank you for joining us. Much of our experience of a place, albeit largely subconsciously, is attached to the things we hear. You may not think so, but you would likely recognise your most frequented haunts solely by the unique sound identity, from the shuffle of a library to the din of a pub. But how do you identify when these soundscapes are under threat, and how do we work to protect them? Eremites, on the Greek island of Corfu, is a 500-acre, biodiverse spot of land with its own unique sound identity, owing to its unique flora, fauna and wildlife. But the area is facing tourism developments that risk it not just looking, but also sounding no different to any other Mediterranean resort, and locals are doing what they can to save it. Greek journalist Anastasia Miari spoke with the acoustic ecologist Ioana Etmeksoglu to find out more. Let's listen in. If a tree falls in the forest and there's nobody around to hear, does it make a sound? The question has plagued philosophy students for hundreds of years, but as with most philosophical questions, it all depends on our interpretation and the semantics behind the word sound and nobody. If pragmatically in this instance we take the word sound to mean the audible frequencies caused by compression and changes in the air that occur as a result of the physical disturbance of said falling tree, then the answer to the question would be yes. Here, the word sound is used to describe wave disturbance, a physical phenomenon. But sound is also a human experience. 
the result of physical signals delivered by human sense organs, which are synthesized in the mind as a form of perception. In this philosophical question, then, the general assumption is that the nobody missing from the forest, and therefore missing the sound, is human. But it isn't just humans that perceive sounds, and neither is it just humans that happen to dwell in forests. A great number of species use sound to communicate. They use it to find a partner. They use it to react to their enemies, find food and all that. So we have found that anthropogenic sound, noise, can affect their patterns of communication. This is Ioana Edmixoglu, professor and acoustic ecologist at the Ionian University in Corfu, Greece. We're speaking ahead of a contentious development planned on the northeast coast of the island. Erimidis, a pristine and biodiverse 500 acres of forest that leads out onto a paradisiacal white pebble beach with turquoise waters, risks being turned into a holiday village, with 42 villas, a 90-room hotel and a marina. But it isn't just the verdant, rolling hills of Erimidis that will be scarred by this development if the Greek government allows it to go ahead. Every place has its sound identity. Erimitis has now a sound identity. which has to do with all the living beings that are there, but also the geology and the plants and trees that produce or modify sounds, filter sounds. All this morphology is going to some extent change by the environment and also the cutting and alteration of the trees. So we have a drastic change to the sonic identity of the place. What she means by sonic identity is the aural soundscape unique to this part of the island. Actually, to this particular 500 acres of the entire planet. Over thousands of years, each place in the world develops its own unique sound identity according to its landscape, flora, fauna and wildlife. No two natural locations on the planet by that I mean untouched by any human development, will have the same sound identity. Since the 1960s, acoustic ecologists like Ioana have been studying how sound environments can affect not just humans but other living species. Canadian composer Murray Schaefer was the first to study sound beyond music and engineering and venture into the world, and indeed coin the term, acoustic ecology. Of course, His knowledge as a composer informed his research into how the sounds of a place affect those inhabiting it. He felt it would be best to introduce his approach through introducing a musical way and saying, okay, if we imagine that our world soundscape is macrocosmic music composition, then we all are responsible for its beauty or its ugliness. So we have to attend more to every single sound that is made and see the balances and imbalances. It started like that. Instead of bemoaning noise pollution in big cities, Schaefer was the first to consider how we can improve the environment by first tuning our own ears to the sonic environment. The sound can go great distances and affect many living organisms. So Remiti is, I suppose, because it's a land that it hasn't been affected by 
anthropogenic sounds, it must have a great biodiversity. So many different species would be living there. And the sounds produced by human activities, construction, but also everyday activities of humans in a touristic place, can greatly affect the species. On my hike to Erimetis, I take a pause and just listen. No cars, no other humans. Just crickets, birds, the crashing of waves, a whistling wind and whispering leaves. This is what Schaefer would have classed as a hi-fi soundscape, one in which all the sounds can be heard clearly. Increasingly, Places with a wide acoustic environment like the one at Erimitis are becoming few and far between. Owing to development and the effects that man-made structures have on that sound environment, the more we build, the narrower our acoustic horizons become. For one meditative minute, my heart rate slows. My shallow breath deepens and I appreciate a soundscape, completely untouched by humans. Then I begin to have a better understanding of Joanna's words. We need places like that to be able to turn inwards and think and reflect and have the time alone. We need the space. It might be sound trains, but even in the islands, even in Corfu, it's hard to find spaces with no anthropogenic sound and a wide acoustic environment. It is amazing that in our days, we don't know the difference to tell the birds from their sound. We have to see into something that is even new and attracts people. We have to make a change. We have seen that this kind of development, building big structures and changing the identities of places, does not bring prosperity beyond a few years for some people, but then it ruins the place. There is nothing for the place to give. If Eremitis loses its sound identity and its characteristics, what will it make different from Malaga or from another place? Everything is the same if it loses its natural identity. Returning to our centuries-old philosophical quandary then, it might well be that a forest empty of humans will have the richest sounds of all. A report there from the Greek journalist Anastasia Miari. Thank you to her. Now, as we've discussed earlier, the pandemic has made cities empty of their usual hustle and bustle, And that was particularly felt in Vienna, a city that isn't really on the loud side anyway. And while there are some tourists around, one of the main things being felt is how you don't really hear other languages spoken on the street. Monocle's contributor in Vienna, Alexei Korolyov, reports. I'm awoken by the sound of a lawnmower. That's my landlord tending the garden. The rumble provokes a parrot in the neighbouring garden and he cheeps and twitters like a deranged talk show host. A window flies open, then a second, then a third. Another day begins. I put my trousers on, have a cup of tea and think about leaving the house. 
So far, everything is as it should be. Outside, the cafes put out tables and chairs. The women wear dresses and skirts. The men socks and sandals. There are more sounds now: cars and and trams and trains, the the coffeehouse mumble, the the noises of the vehicles, the carriages in the streets. This is the symphony of a city. And above and beyond all this, voices, the vocal parts of the symphony. Everything is as it should be. But just a few weeks ago, it wasn't like that at all. Vienna was quiet. In fact, we know exactly how quiet. Die aktuellen Verkehrszählungen haben ergeben, dass sich der Verkehr in Wien etwa um die Hälfte in der Zeit der Corona-Krise reduziert hat. Das Karin Büchel-Kramerstetter. She's the head of the municipal department for environmental protection. And she says that during the worst of Austria's coronavirus outbreak, noise levels in Vienna went down by three decibels. In practical terms, and using the sound of traffic as a benchmark, this means a reduction of 50%. So there were hardly any cars on the streets, and even fewer people. During that time, like many, I took long and socially distanced walks, and the few people that I met on those walks were invariably Austrian. In our globalized age and in such a globalized city, this sudden absence of other languages and other nationalities felt very wrong and worrying. That's not the normal uh, state of a, a city. Uh, right now, we talk about 10 to 15 percent for arrivals and overnight stays, compared to 80 percent. The last year. Mm. In 2020, we are in the survival mode. We are not, not talking about business in 2020. We're talking about surviving. Norbert Kettner is the director of the Vienna Tourist Board. Foreign speech is music to his ears. The city has to be international, has to be, has to be cosmopolitan. And there were some foreign languages because a lot of people who don't speak German, are still living in the city and were living in the city because it was a safe haven during the crisis. But you're completely right. So uh, I think the, the, the glamour and the attraction of a city is its international appeal. And so languages, foreign languages, play a crucial role in that. As the borders slowly reopen, the tourists return. But this new post-COVID Vienna is a far cry from its usual multilingual, noisy self. Will it ever be the same again? Norbert Kettner would certainly like to think so. Cities work like organisms, and, and in the case of Vienna, the organism will recover quickly, I think. But anyhow, I think that certain values like openness, international approach, the role of women, the role of minorities, they may come under pressure. And I, I really think that this discussion of reorganizing it on a local level and uh, becoming more regional, which is good in many aspects, also can bring some strange things with it. And what about the noise? A, a well-functioning modern city tries to be less noisy, to avoid noise, which is not necessary, but it will never be a quiet place. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. And that's all for this edition of The Urbanist. 
Today's episode was produced by Carlotta Rabella and David Stevens. David also edited the show. And to play you out of this week's episode, here's Marvin Gaye with I Heard It Through the Grapevine. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. City Lovers.